right, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Black Agenda Podcast. Uh, my name is Devin Dito, and I'm here with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we are happy to be back with you uh, for our weekly roundup number 14. And as always, we have tons of news to get to. So we have some, some news you may have heard about during the week, but also some funny news at the end of the show. Um, and so we just like to bring it to you as we say, in an unbiased way. Um, and so, Adrian, uh, you can kick us off here. We have a pretty interesting first story um, to kind of start with. Yeah, Devin. This one now, uh, listeners, when I, I was doing some little research, I found this story to be very, very interesting because it's one of those things that, you know, you hear stereotypes from, you know, the foster care industry about how they're almost abusing the children and kind of just using them for money. Well, there's been a report from the Marshall Project and NPR of some agencies who are actually doing that. So just to give you a little backstory, roughly 10 percent of foster youth in the United States are entitled to Social Security benefits, either because their parents have died or because they have a physical or mental disability that would leave them in poverty without financial help. This money, typically about $700 a month through survivor benefits, vary and is considered their property under federal law. And like I said, the Marshall Project and NPR have found that in at least 36 states and Washington, D.C., state foster care agencies comb through their case files to find kids entitled to these benefits, then apply to the Social Security Administration to become each child's financial representative, a process which is actually permitted by federal regulations. But once they are actually approved, the agencies will take that money almost without even notifying the children or their loved ones or the lawyers. And, and this, to me, you know, listeners, just seems kind of scandalous that it's even a legal practice and they don't even have to notify the children that they've actually, you know, applied to be their uh, financial representative. That's kind of crazy to me. Um, some states also, uh, Devin, take veterans benefits from children with parents who died in the military, though this has become less common as casualties have declined since the Iraq War. State foster care agencies collected more than $165 million from children just in 2018 alone. So that's a lot of money to be collecting from children who would actually not be able to uh, make ends meet without this help. In interviews, several officials also said that children in foster care are not mature enough to make good financial choices on their own and that their family members or foster parents may have ill intentions and pocket the cash. So, Devin, you know, it just seems like the foster care system here in America is just uh, it just isn't any good news. I mean, you know, I think we already have a problem when it comes to making sure that the children who are in the system can you know, find a good home, come out, you know, productive citizens contributing to society. But when you've got agencies that are pocketing their money and benefiting, that just seems so shady. What do you think? It's shady is right. Um, It's just another abuse of these. Um, organizations that are supposed to be there, uh, you know, to help uh, the children that are in the system. And it's just ridiculous that they would go to that length, um, you know, to, 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 you know, go and apply to be the, the financial representative for the child, take that money, not let them know that they're even, you know, uh, they can get that money and then they use it and do what they want with it. Uh, we see these kind of abuses with um, you know, public organizations all the time. We saw it in, in Mississippi with like Brett Favre and, and some other folks got accused of stealing money um, or having received money from um, an organization that was supposed to be giving money to the poor in Mississippi. But yet it's going to all sorts of folks who are not 
you know, needing this money. And, and it's just, it's sad because like you say, these kids are already in a terrible situation because they do have to be in the foster care system. And then you want to add on, you know, foster care agencies literally combing through their files to find kids that are entitled to these benefits and then making sure that they stand in as the middleman and take it before the money ever gets to the child. And so um, ridiculous, shady, um, it's just awful that this is what we're doing to children who already have enough to deal with. Um, you, you do this to them as well. And um, obviously, you know, it's, it's not right, but we have to find some way um, of, of closing this. I guess you call it a, a loophole. You know, we have to do this. This is kind of one of those stories. It, it seems like it falls in the cracks, um, you know, because there are so many other things going on in the world. But stories like these have real impact. You're talking millions of dollars from children or for children that they're not getting. And these could put them, you know, in a financial place where, you know, they could have a, f- a foundation when they get into the real world or, or just something. And we have to find a way to close this loophole. Um, and so, like I say, we, we have to find a way of, of closing the loophole, but also getting this on the agenda for a lot of people. Um, I don't know how we get there, but we do need someone to kind of use their megaphone um, to call attention, you know, to stories like this. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Devin. And I'm hopeful that, you know, this story can start to get some attention um, and get some some notice, um, because I, I think whenever people start having issues with, you know, uh, abortion and things like that, if we can help with our you know, adoption system, our foster care system, strengthen those, make those better, then I think that that can help to alleviate, you know, some of this other tension because you can encourage, you know, mothers to have their children. And if the adoption industry is better then they, hey, they can get adopted. If the foster care industry is better, if they don't get adopted right away, then they can go in foster care and still learn and develop and become great children, great adults, and then, you know, become independent themselves. Um, it's definitely, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's like our, our society always just wants to ignore you know, root causes of issues and just try to scratch the surface or talk about, you know, hot topic items or talk about things that are going to, you know, get voters to the ballot and things like that. Because obviously this isn't something that's a sexy topic around election season, (laughs) but it is something that's so valuable because those children are going to go on to become adults who are going to go on to become either productive citizens or unproductive citizens where they're going to be a debt on society. So, it is something that we really uh, should be paying more attention to. No, for sure. For sure. And so just kind of staying, you know, in the realm of, I guess you could, I don't know if you could call it fraud, but I know technically what they're doing is legal, but um, there are a lot of people last year who were, you know, applied for those PPP loans. So if you don't know what a PPP loan, that is the paycheck protection program that the government started last year um, after, you know, we shut down the economy um, this, this loan program was supposed to be for small businesses and larger ones, um, you know, to help kind of fill the gaps as far as the, the revenue that they were going to be losing because the economy was shut down. But as we all know, Adrian, there's going to be some folks who want to go in and take advantage of this particular system. And it looks like the IRS and other agencies are just now starting to go back and comb through these applications. And they're starting to uncover a little bit of fraud here. Now, I wouldn't even say a little bit. It might be more widespread than we think. But there are a couple of stories here that we wanted to talk about. One was there's a pastor in Washington, D.C., um, who's been accused of fraud and buying a Tesla with his PPP loan. 
So his name is Mr. Uh, Rudolph Brooks Jr. He's the pastor of Kingdom Tabernacle of Restoration. And so he's been accused of submitting fraudulent information through the payroll protection program, uh, which is a, a business. He used the business that he registered in Maryland under his name. And so now these warrants say uh, they're trying to seize $2.2 million <laughs> from Mr. Brooks's bank accounts. And they're trying to get a t- 2018 Tesla Model 3, all of which he bought with his PPP money. And so it looks like he was actually able to borrow um, $1.6 million in May of 2020. The loan was approved and distributed to a bank account in his name. Um, but of course, he this was he included all kind of fraudulent tax returns or tax forms with his application, um, reporting hundreds of thousands of dollars in business expenses, which were obviously fraudulent. And just to make this worse, the money was transferred to his personal bank accounts. He made payments on his credit cards, restaurants, grocery stores, even auto auctioneers. He used the money to buy uh, dozens of used cars, including the Tesla a Mercedes-Benz, and even a Cadillac Escalade. So, I mean, he really went to town here uh, with this PPP money. And then, <laughs> and so if that's not enough, there is another story. Because we're going to shift from Mr. Brooks now. We're going to shift over now to, I think this week it came out that there's an Instagram model. Um, and just, <laughs> Adrian, just understand this. This is an Instagram model who got a $20,000 PPP loan. She has now had to start a GoFundMe to try to pay the money back <laughs> because the government has come back and say, Oh, by the way, Hey, you have to repay this because you, you know, obviously she may have submitted a fraudulent application um, and they're coming back to say, Hey, you owe us this money now. And so I feel like this is going to be just the beginning of a lot of people who may have to be starting GoFundMe's or be locked up or, you know, be facing charges like Mr. Pastor Brooks in DC uh, because they have filled out fraudulent, um, PPP applications. And so, you know, my first thought, Adrian, was that we should have known better because there's nothing free ever coming from the government, especially when the IRS is involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, Devin, it's, it, it's really interesting when you see stuff like this happening because, you know, when, when, when the government was issuing out all these PPP loan, uh, loans, you know, the country was going through, you know, some hardships. I mean, people had lost their jobs. There was a lot of death. Um, a lot of industries were going down. And you would think that with all that calamity, people would, you know, not, you know, try to take advantage of the system because there's just so many people suffering, especially you got a pastor. You, you know, I, I was a youth pastor. I mean, I, I know he's got some, um, some members within his congregation who are probably struggling, lost their jobs, couldn't pay rent. And, you know, you've got him doing this and, you know, buying a Tesla with it rather than actually using it to, you know, develop, you know, the mission of the church and uplift the community through that. Um, just so interesting. And, you know, Devin, it, it just, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, it's there's always going to be a few people who find ways to scam or cheat the system. There's always going to be a few bad apples of the bunch. Um, we've got to always do as we're doing, call those apples out and try to eradicate that and make sure that this doesn't happen. And, and Devin, to your point about, you know, making sure that the process is better or, you know, uh, for the future, I think that that's going to be great. You know, whenever we're uh, doing this, whether we, you know, hopefully we don't go through another pandemic, but in the, in the, in the instance that the government does have to issue, you know, some more 
know, PPP loans, um, they should have a better system. I mean, you should have a better application process, you know, for how you're going to, you know, utilize this money. You know, if, if it's a loan, obviously there's, you know, a, a, you know, a payment, you know, a repayment portion to that. So definitely need to, you know, address this a, a better way because this is a lot of money that our government's just giving uh, away in loans. And if we're not giving them away to people who are actually going to utilize them correctly, then I mean, we're wasting, you know, money. I mean, giving it to an IG model, you know, no offense. I mean, it, you know, if she was helping out some other things, yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, starting a GoFundMe just to pay the loan back. That's just, <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's asking other people to help you for your mistake like that when you shouldn't have abused the system. So uh, hopefully lessons learned from her, mm-hmm. Pastor, and a lot of other people who've kind of abused the system. Yeah, I, I think what caught a lot of people off guard was the fact that this information is is public. And so like you can go up, you can go and look up which companies apply for a PPP, PPP loan and how much they got. A lot of that is public. And so I think that also caught a lot of people off guard because you can you can see these things. I don't think you can see who owns these companies. But if you go in there, you can find out who got which, you know, who got loans, how much they got. And so. Now you're seeing some people say, oh, well, you know, because I know a lot of people were talking about it, um, just folks that I know who were talking about maybe I should apply because the, 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 the goal was to get the money out as quick as possible. And then we'll figure it out later as far as figuring out who wasn't supposed to receive it, which in theory, I understand. But I just, you know, a lot of people better be very careful <laughs> as we go into the rest of this year, next year, that you don't get a nice letter from the IRS saying that you need to pay back X amount of money. Um, you know, to them, <laughs> or they're going to take your tax return next year. You know, they have all kind of levers that they can pull uh, to recoup this money back. That's that's why I never even flirted with the idea because I don't want the IRS in my business ever <laughs> when it comes to taxes or PPP business or whatever, um, because they don't care. They will come in and take whatever they need to recuperate the money that they're looking for. Um, so, like you say, it's just a lesson. And, and just a warning to those who may be wondering if I'm next, you know, just just be ready if you get a call of the letter, um, you know, from the IRS. And so interesting stories there. Uh, did you have something to say, Arjun, before we go into break? No, no. Other than uh, making other than our before the break story, there's a lot of interesting things going around uh, going on around the planet. Yeah, there are. And so um, just before we go into break, we want to let you know here that there was a story that we saw out of. Indonesia. So it looks like um, Indonesia's Navy has actually changed the status of its missing submarine from submiss to subsank um, on Saturday. And so um, and the naval chief presented debris that actually was from the vessel. So the authorities now expect to carry out an, an evacuation process to recover. Um, let me go back here. To recover this submarine. And so the latest update came as hopes faded. It looks like 53 crew members who were expected to have run out of oxygen early today. So far, there's been no sign of them um, being found. And so kind of a sad story coming out of Indonesia there. It looks like all 53 crew members um, are probably going to be lost um, to this particular this you know, awful accident there. So um, just an interesting story out of Indonesia, just keeping you you know aware of what's happening in the world. So we're going to take our very first quick break and we will be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, 
Let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right. So welcome back. So we're going to get into the other huge story this week, uh, Adrian, which was that the Derek Chauvin trial officially wrapped up. And I think a lot of people were um, pleased with the result of it. So we finally this time got some accountability and and justice, I would say, um, for, for, for our police officers who are out here um, killing you know unarmed black people. And so uh, this week, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. And so uh, his suggested sentencing ranges for unintentional second-degree murder and third-degree murder is the same. So for those two charges, he could be facing over 10 and a half years to 15 years in prison. Um, the recommended median sentence is about 12 and a half years. And so um, right now, they're expecting his sentence to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 um, and that's and just for context here, 12 and a half years is exactly what um, former police officer Mohammed Noor, who is another former police officer in Minneapolis. He was convicted of third degree murder for firing a shot from inside his squad car and killing a woman who had called 911. He also got 12 and a half years. I um, mean, that was in 2019. And so uh, Derek Chauvin's sentencing has been set for June 16th. Um, and that's going to be. Uh, at 1.30 p.m. that day. And this is from uh, Minnesota Reports. And so also, I know some people were wondering, is he going to be able to get off on appeal? Despite the unique circumstances that surround this trial, how popular it was and just how, you know, how pervasive it was, everybody pretty much knew about it. Um, it could offer some avenues, but some of the legal experts, most of the legal experts are saying it's a long shot that Derek Chauvin is going to get off on appeal or retrial or anything of the sorts. And so, um, Adrian, it's, it's kind of a weird feeling, you know, it's, it's justice, it's accountability, but I think, you know, obviously people are still realizing, yes, we got what we wanted, but there's still a lot of work to do. And, you know, George Floyd is still not here with us. We still went through all of last year with the protests and everything. And, and heck we, you know, just after this trial ended, we got more police shootings and things to deal with. So, while this is great for us to celebrate, the work is far, far from over. You know, Devin, it's you know interesting when you say you know justice or accountability. I would like to think it's more of the latter because when you think about justice, you know, justice is making things fair. And how do you make something fair if someone takes another person's life? I mean, that's um, is twelve years imprisonment. Is that fair enough? You know, for taking uh, George Floyd away from his family. I would probably say no. Um, I'm not saying that you, you know, we've got to, you know, put, you know, Chauvin on, on death row, but it's definitely not something that I would say that is justice out of this, you know, conviction. Definitely more accountability. Um, I hope that it's a signal uh, to law enforcement everywhere that, you know, enough's enough. I mean, it's it, it's interesting. Well, not interesting. I guess it's silly and crazy that 
even during the trial, you know, we had, you know, uh, officers killing unarmed uh, citizens. I mean, it's it's just so crazy that we continue to go uh, throughout this cycle of police brutality and we continue to, you know, ask these questions are, you know, are we getting justice? Are we getting the things that we deserve here? And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I'm happy about, you know, the, the, the event because I, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to see what this is going to do for us, you know, as a society. I'm thankful that the family can have a little bit of peace um, because I do, you know, know from, you know, seeing their interviews on TV, um, they seem to have a little bit of ease uh, uh, to their minds and to their thoughts about what's going on. Um, and, you know, the, the, the good thing that I guess can be brought out of this, Devin, is that, you know, George Floyd was made a martyr uh, through that process uh, of having, you know, uh, a knee in his neck. And, you know, through that, you know, uh, you know, uh, the horrific, you know, tragedy that happened, we've had a lot of great things stem from that. We've had some 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 movements. We've had some some pushes to get things done in our government to address these issues. And I hope that this you know conviction is another push to continue to carry out uh, those movements. Right. I think this will help, you know, advance the ball forward. But like I say, you know, we have more shootings and things um, that we're really going to have to deal with. And and listen, you know, Derek Chauvin is one police officer, you know, and he's part of a larger you know, attitude within these police departments that they are above the law. You know, they don't operate by the same rules that we do. And so it is nice to see, yes, you know, some justice finally finally did get served this time. Um, But, you know, people rightly are just like, you know, hey, we have a very long way to go. And hopefully, like you say, this continues to push the movement forward, um, give people at least a little bit of hope that, these things, you know, when police officers do make these, you know, quote unquote mistakes, like with Dante Wright or, you know, with Derek Chauvin kneeling on the man's neck for, for nine minutes, that they're held accountable. You know, just because they are police officers does not mean that they cannot be deadly and dangerous. I think black people and more than anybody understand that police officers, while they are here to protect and serve, um, they can be harmful. They can be deadly. <laughs> they're still people. and We've been told, you know, it's just one bad apple. Well, there seem to be a lot of bad apples running around in the streets right now. And a lot of them have bad intent and they have a handgun on on their hip, which they are legally able to pull the trigger if they feel, quote, feel like they are in danger. And so we have to we have to fix that. That's the crux of the problem. You know, it's it's just that there's an attitude that the, the public where there's black people, lower class folks need to be quote unquote controlled by the police departments. That's that's the attitude that they come out with and they feel as though any person on the street could could shoot and kill an officer. Um and yeah. I just think we have to really reimagine and rethink the training that we're giving these guys um before we send them out with a handgun on their hip and say go protect neighborhoods. <laughs> exactly. It's just like what um officer um when we talked to the Dallas PD mm-hmm. uh did yep. our interview and how they talked about the fact that you know you get a lot of these cops who whenever they think about bad neighborhoods they think about black and brown people. Um whenever they think about crime and cleaning yep. up the cities they think about policing black and brown communities. They don't think about going into you know white neighborhoods and cleaning those up. Um, and you get these people who have training and come out and they're just ready to take care of the city. 
But to them, taking care of the city means going into black and brown neighborhoods and making sure nothing happens, making sure that they, you know, stop something before it, you know, starts. That, you know, that's the kind of thing we've got to fight against because, you know, it seems like, you know, there's so many biases and there's fear within our uh, police officers towards our black and brown citizens that, you know, that you have instances like this going on. So, yeah, we, we've really got to, uh, uh, you know, wake up and start to address this and change the way policing looks like. And, you know, listeners, we'll definitely continue to keep you in the loop of what our country is doing with this. We'll uh, definitely when we come back in season three, we'll have an episode to kind of see, you know, what policing is, uh, what all of this stuff with, you know, the Chauvin trial, the George Floyd movements, what did that actually has done for us, you know, over some time. So we'll make sure to keep you in the loop in that. Um, another story we wanted to talk about, which is really, really interesting, but this is about, you know, being able to give uh, children or juveniles uh, sentencing of life without parole uh, for crimes that they committed. So to give you a little backstory, listeners, uh, the Supreme Court on Thursday rejected a new challenge for life sentences issued to juveniles. The court ruled that juvenile offenders can be sentenced to life without parole, even without having a uh, separate factual finding that the, the defendant is incapable of rehabilitation, which is just really, really interesting that you could be a child, you know, get sentenced to life without parole, and there's basically no sort of finding that you are incapable of, you know, coming back into society as a productive, you know, adult. The opinion affirms a Mississippi court sentence for inmate Brett Jones, who received a life sentence without parole for murdering his grandfather with a kitchen knife during a domestic dispute. Jones, who was then 15, later claimed that his sentence ran afoul of constitutional protections. And if I'm not mistaken, that kind of references, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, we were, as a government, we're not supposed to have unusual or cruel punishments. And obviously, that's kind of where this is coming in. If you're saying a child can't have any sort of parole, that's kind of cruel and unusual. Of course, uh, the Supreme Court ruled on this, and uh, the dissent, Justice Sonia Mora, she actually was joined by two other liberal justices and really just came out against this here, just saying that uh, uh, Jones and other juvenile offenders like him seek only the, uh, the possibility of parole, not the certainty of release, but the opportunity at some point in their lives to show a parole board all they have done to rehabilitate themselves and to ask for a second chance. So, Devin, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's really interesting because when I think about this and think about, you know, who community, you know, what communities this are affecting, I definitely go back again to black and brown communities because you see a lot of our children who, you know, grow up in really bad neighborhoods, do some bad things, end up in jail. And if you could be 15, go to jail for life without the possibility of parole, I mean, that's terrible. I mean, you, you think about, you know, that 15-year-old after you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and they're 35, I would imagine they would have reflected on what they've done and been able to build some sort of skills to come back into society. I mean, I'm not saying we need to make sure that our, you know, our society is, is, is integrated back with all, you know, murderers, rapists, and all that kind of stuff. But I think that the way our prison systems have with the rehabilitation system in place, there are certain people, once they've proven themselves, they should be allowed to, you know, have another chance in society, especially if you, you know, done something as a child. Exactly. I mean, you know, our correctional system um, very rarely, or at least it's terrible at really correcting 
anything. Um, it seems like we are only interested in trying to banish away people um, and just, you know, keep them locked up for for time on end. I mean, in that case, I mean, the kid's 15. He, he's a teenager. You could say teenager kid, whatever. He's 15 years old. And he's going to pay for that that mistake for the rest of his life um, and, be, and never get a chance to say, I'm sorry, or I've rehabilitated. I'm a different person now. Because I think most people would admit that you're a different person at 15 than you are at, say, 25, 35, 55. You know, I'm not advocating that we should just let people back on the street because, you know, they were juveniles. But to just say that you you have to, you know, that you can sentence teenagers to life without parole. It's just I just don't know what kind of society, you know, we're, we're trying. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's moral. You know what happened? Like she's saying, what happened to be able to to fight for a second chance, or at least have the opportunity to show that you have rehabilitated and deserve a second chance? There's no there's what he's what this ruling is saying is you won't get that opportunity. Period. You won't get to ever, you know, say your side of the story. You would just have to sit there from 15 years age, you know, young and and onward, deal with that mistake or that crime that you committed or whatever. Um, I understand punishment, but it just seems extremely excessive to do that to a juvenile. Um, Because again, we all make mistakes early on in life and he made a deadly one, but to just say that you will never get the opportunity to fight for your freedom ever again in life just seems ridiculous, you know, for a free society that's always trying to say how much we care about people's lives. Um, exactly. I just, I mean, you know, again, just... it's just morally wrong. Uh, and it just seems, you know, that prisoners, I think they should be given a second chance. And again, we already know that most of the folks who are in prison look like us. You know, they're black and brown bodies in there. Um, and so it just seems, you know, in, in things like this, this affect us more than anybody else, you know, because we are the majority of the prison population. So, and we already know that our youth have extremely high unemployment rates. In some, in some places, 50% of our youth are unemployed. So they're going to do things, <laughs> you know, to, to provide for their families if they're in a poor neighborhood that may land them, you know, in prison. And they may have to pay for that mistake for the rest of their life if they do get sentenced to life without parole. So uh, it just seems, it just seems like it's, it's, it's morally wrong to me to just say to a kid that, yes, you made a mistake at 15. You're never going to get a chance to, to live life ever, ever again. You know, it yeah, just, and yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, whenever you think about justice Kavanaugh, some of his statements that he made was that, you know, um, you know, states, you know, the ruling doesn't prevent states from imposing additional sentencing limits or, you know, categorically prohibiting, you know, life sentences for juvenile offenders. But when you're giving it up to the state's discretion, I mean, that's that's so open. I mean, yeah. you have, you know, California, who is probably going to not uphold this, but you got Mississippi, who's trying to do it. So you can't just leave it up to the states to say, well, you know, they can, you know, make, they can relax the rules if they want to, because more than likely, if they're in a more conservative red state, they're probably not going to relax their rules versus a more no. liberal blue state. So, and, and you think about, you know, him becoming a justice and the fact that, you know, his second chance moment, because he was accused of things uh, while he was younger, 
And his defense was pretty much, well, I was younger and I was you know, yeah. maturing or whatever. And now <laughs> I'm older and I'm ready to you know, be a Supreme Court justice. I mean, that to me is really a double standard, David, when you've got someone like this who has been given you know, a second chance, essentially, uh, and now sits on you know, the highest court in the land and is making decisions on people to tell them they can't have a second chance. That's you know, it's 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 very ironic, and 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 I, I really hope that um, that the, the Democrats, President Biden. I know there's been a little bit of you know talk about you know reforming the Supreme Court. Um, what can we do with court packing, or what can we do with uh, maybe uh, adding some more federal positions to kind of outbalance or outweigh some of the top decisions from the Supreme Court. I really hope we push for that because, I mean, you, you got, you know, Donald Trump, who was the worst president, but very, very successful when, when you yes. think about the judicial branch. I mean, so many federal positions. And then he got three justices, uh, all of whom I think were like in their, you know, 40s or, you know, yeah. very young. So, I mean, they're going to be in there for, I mean, most of our, you know, lifetime and probably a little, I mean, it's crazy. Um, so I really, really hope that we can have some sort of reforms because, th- you know, you know, listeners, this is why, you know, stuff from Supreme Court matters. I know it's, you know, we're always thinking about what's happening on Capitol Hill and what's happening at, you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but what's going down at Supreme Court, I mean, this can have some major ramifications in our community. So we, we really got to start paying more attention to it. Yeah, we do. And this is why your vote matters. You know, <laughs> when you elect the president or local level, uh, judges have a lot of discretion. Um, and like, you know, like he's saying, the states can decide things, too. Um, and so just just keep it in mind that we're still fighting battles like this <laughs> to not allow children to be sentenced, um, you know, to life without parole. So we'll definitely keep you updated on that particular story. So we're going to go uh, before we go on a break. We're going to give you a little story here. Uh, from NASA that's kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so before we go to break, uh, it looks like there's a growing list of firsts uh, for NASA's Perseverance um, robot. And so it looks like the newest six-wheel robot on the Martian surface includes something that can convert some of the red planet's thin carbon dioxide-rich air- atmosphere into oxygen. And so the NASA rover has a toaster-sized experimental instrument that's called the Mars Oxygen in Suto Resource Utilization Experiment. That's a lot. AKA the acronym is MOXIE. That's a lot better. <laughs> uh, but the they actually tested this on April 20th, uh, which was the 60th Martian day um, that the rover has been there since February 18th. And so while the technology demonstration is just getting started, it could pave the way to being able to make science fiction to become science fact. And so it's going to be isolating and storing oxygen on Mars to help power rockets that can lift astronauts off the planet's surface. So um, just a fun fact there that they are testing, trying to convert oxygen on our Mars's, you know, atmosphere into oxygen so that we could breathe if we ever make it there. So very interesting stuff happening up at NASA. So um, with that, we're going to take our second break and when we come back, we'll get into the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and then also some interesting celebrities are throwing their hats into political races. So uh, stick with us and we'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. We absolutely. All right, listeners, let's get back into it. Our third segment here, as Devin was talking about, we want to open up talking about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So there was a report that came out about the Chamber of Commerce and how they urged U.S. senators to reject a voting reform bill passed by the Democratic House. And, you know, basically it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the main organization, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, is almost whipping votes against, you know, voter reform, while its members are actually advocating for, you know, everyone being able to vote. You know, we saw that huge letter of a lot of corporations coming out, you know, against the Georgia bill. So this is why, you know, this is kind of having some precedent for us listeners. The, the legislation that they're opposing, uh, it really helps to make voting easier by limiting gerrymandering of congressional districts, requiring third-party groups to reveal secret donors, and reforming a watch, uh, election watchdog, among other things. The, the bill actually did pass the House, you know, hugely on party lines, 220 to 210. Um, and what they're really trying to do here is, you know, get the Senate to knock this bill down. Um, the proponents uh, say that these revisions are actually, uh, are, you know, going to help to deter voter fraud. So, you know, again, Devin, we're always trying to throw out that big old, you know, uh, allegation of voter fraud, voter fraud to scare people. <laughs> and, and that's like what, man. you know, the, yeah, exactly. And that's what the Chamber of Commerce is doing to say that, you know, what, you know, so you know, I don't know what they're, you know, trying to advocate for. It's, you know, we're trying to just make it to where people can vote. You know, it's it, voting shouldn't be a complicated process. It shouldn't be something that um, you've got to fight against. Uh, but they're basically saying that, you know, the, the bill is really going to change the way campaign finance law uh, has so that basically whenever you're trying to give or not give money, it's going to impose some sort of restrictions for advocating for and against candidates. And essentially, they're saying it's going to transform the FEC uh, from a nonpartisan committee to a more of a you know partisan committee driven by the, the main party that's in office. The chamber and its employees did give about two hundred thousand dollars in the twenty twenty elections to Democratic candidates, which was the most since nineteen ninety two. But three quarters of their donations did go to Republican candidates. So, again, Devin, it's just interesting to see this sort of position uh, from the Chamber of Commerce, basically opposing the For the People Act of twenty twenty one, saying that we don't need to make voting easier. We need to make voting. Harder, you know. I don't. Again, I don't know why we keep having this conversation. But you know, when you've got uh, you know the U.S. Chamber of Commerce essentially, you know, probably putting money and you know smooching some of these U.S. senators to vote against this bill, and the fact that you know we've only I mean it's a 50-50 split, so you can't really you know you know if you if you miss one or two senators, you can't really get much done. So I, I hope that their actions don't you know go much further. I hope that the fact that more news outlets are starting to bring this to light, that they'll get more negative flack. And I I really hope that a lot of these companies who came out and said we're not going to support voter suppression leave the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Just you don't don't have to be a part of the organization if they're going to uh, endorse voter suppression. (laughs) Well, as long as they can keep referring to the boogeyman of voter fraud, then uh, they will continue supporting these, you know, or trying to. 
you know, advocate against these proposals like the For the People's Act um, because they're afraid of more people going to the ballot box. It's just, just it's this weird relationship that they have, particularly on the conservative side, where it's just like anytime you talk about new voters coming in or expanding access to the ballot box or trying to make voting easier, they have this idea in their head that a whole bunch of people are just going to randomly run in and fraudulently cast votes. And to me, that's a sign that they know that they can't run on their ideas. They Their ideas are, and this is the Republican and conservative party that the U.S. Chamber tends to support, um, their ideas only really appeal to a certain part of this country. Um, and so their stance here in fighting the For the People's Act, like you say, their members may not necessarily agree with that. I would hope that they would be able to step out and say, we're not going to be a part of the chamber since they're now publicly advocating against certain bills and things like that. Um, but I do think even what, even with what happened in Georgia, you know, with, with MLB moving its all-star game out of there, there are a lot of people in that organization who probably supported that bill. Uh, I think a lot of the companies you see are responding to public outrage when internally they're probably still giving money to conservative lawmakers who support these types of voter restriction bills. AT&T, Coke, all of those are probably still giving the same contributions um, that they were giving before. They're just publicly saying, we don't support these things and all that. It's a nice lip service. But, you know, with the chamber getting more involved here, um, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe some of their members will step out and say, we can't support this. But honestly, you know, agent, they're a pretty powerful lobby. I'm pretty, they have a lot of money. Obviously, they gave 200000 to to candidates last year. Um, and so... Uh, we have a question here, you know, who is this really helping? I, you know, I don't know. It's obviously not helping people um, who want to make voting easier and people who may not necessarily participate in the election process who feel like it's hopeless because of things like gerrymandering. Um, it's not helping them. I think they, they have a, people like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have an incentive to keep things the way that they are. Keep the status quo. It has worked for them up to this point. Um, and so they would rather try to hold on to their power and to you know increase ba- access to the ballot box um, and support something like the For the People Act of 2021. So I don't know, Adrian. You know, we we have this discussion <laughs> all the time about voting, <laughs> but um, that boogeyman always seems to come out every time we talk about it. It, it does, <laughs> and, and, and I and I, I always think you know the, the most rational decision uh, for the the GOP on the federal, state, and local level if they want to increase voter turnout. You know, get more. You know, uh, people energized about their party. You know, listen to you know the constituents. Listen to what they want. I mean, people are wanting a more robust government. They're not wanting a government that just sits in a corner and ignores you know what's going on and says we just want limited small government. No, people want a government who can provide services and benefits in a positive, productive way for the community without being intrusive, obviously. But that doesn't mean you need to be, you know, you know, withdrawn and reserved from what's going on. And I feel like that's what the Republican Party is all about. We're going to not, you know, help you out. We're going to uh, make sure that corporations are good so that they can, you know, create more jobs. And in turn, that'll help you out. Um, but no, you've really got to expand what you're doing for people. And that is going to get you the votes you need versus trying to tell people 
they don't need to go to the polls or creating all these <laughs> silly uh, bills like not giving people food and water because they've stood in a line for four hours in Georgia. Like, come on, it's just listen to the constituents, do things that are going to build the community and then people vote for you. It sounds easy, you know, but that's when you can't <laughs> le- when you can't leave with your ideas and you have to you know, try to keep people from going to vote. <laughs> um, and so I'd uh, like you say, though, the attitude should be. Let's provide a better, you know, have a better functioning government, provide better services. And because politicians have been so bad at their jobs, um, not all of them, but a lot of them have been on the state, federal and local level. Now you have celebrities that are trying to step into the political realm and think that they can do a better job than some of the people we have in our current, um, you know, political offices. And so uh, there's three that we're going to really touch on today. The first one here. It's former NFL or Herschel Walker, who is um, looking at maybe gearing up to take um, a run against a new senator, recently elected Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia. So Herschel Walker, is he's expressed interest in running for the U.S. Senate seat that Warnock currently holds, uh, but he hasn't necessarily declared. But he is a proud supporter of Donald Trump, who, um, you know, former President Trump has already spoken out in support of the uh, Republican, um, Mr. Herschel Walker there, and he's encouraging him to run. He said it would be, quote, fantastic um, if the legendary Herschel Walker ran for the the United States Senate in Georgia. Um, And so right now, again, he hasn't declared, but he is expressing possible interest in running um, against Senator Warnock. So we go from Georgia to California, which might be the biggest one of them all. Um, And so now we have Caitlyn Jenner, who has decided that she's going to throw her hat into the race to run against uh, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, um, who is the current governor of California. Now, he's looking at possibly being recalled um, and being put out of office. And so Jenner said on Friday that she's, quote, I'm in on Twitter. She said she's she's going to run. And so you may remember Caitlyn Jenner is an Olympic hero, reality TV personality, and transgender rights activist. And so she's drawing a growing list of people we're seeking to put out uh, Gavin Newsom there in California. That's your state, Adrian. So I'm sure you're familiar with what Gavin Newsom's been doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, not doing a great I job. Have. I will just say that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's why a lot of people have been moving and going to your state. That is true. That is very, very true. They are bringing all kind of companies here to Texas out of California. It's like an exodus almost um, out of there. But um, Jenner has declared, though. So she's come out. But her platform is kind of vague. Um, she said she's for cutting taxes, repairing the economy, fighting special interests in California's Democratic-dominated politics. Not Nothing real specific, um, but we'll see. Um, and then the last person here is you all probably know him, actor uh, Matthew McConaughey, has been flirting with the idea of running for Texas governor against the current incumbent, Greg Abbott. And so... Interesting thing here is that we actually have poll numbers. So there was a recent poll done. I think this was on the 20th, maybe about five days ago um, that said here, Matthew McConaughey in this poll actually got 45% of support from Texas registered voters um, versus 33% who would say they would vote for Greg Abbott. So 45% of Texas voters said they would vote for Matthew McConaughey versus a Greg Abbott. But the interesting thing though is that among Republicans, which we know Texas is still deeply red, 56% of Republican voters said they would still vote for Greg Abbott 
compared to only 30% who said they would vote for Matthew McConaughey. Now, for Democrats, 66% said they would vote for McConaughey, um, compared to 8% who said they would vote for somebody else. Um, Independence is a 44% to 28% split. So, uh, Matthew, I think McConaughey said he's more of a moderate. He's criticized both of the major parties. So, I guess, Adrian, we got Hersha Walker in Georgia, Caitlyn Jenner running for governor in California, Matthew McConaughey flirting with the idea of running for governor in Texas. So the question is, should we take any of this seriously? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Devin, I would, you know, I, w- I guess I wouldn't be an American or if I said that, you know, anyone, you know, can't run for public office because, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, quali- the qualifications of our constitution is very, you know, vague. Uh, and even in state constitutions, you don't, you know, you don't have to be someone with a bunch of experience. Um, you, you could be like Caitlyn Jenner and be someone who doesn't, you know, have a, a, an agenda and still run for office, and that's fine. I just hope that what we see um, from this is, is is some actions. I, I hope that you know these celebrities aren't just you know having good intentions uh, and, and and no plans, you know, throughout it. Because one, you know, we know that politicking and campaigning is about money, and all three of these people that are going to be running have plenty of money. Um, to where they could probably self-fund and not worry about, you know, donations and things like that. But with that being said, um, they need to have concrete plans because, I mean, you know, uh, you got Walker, if he's going to be going against Warnock, I mean, that's a, you know, I, I would, that's a hard one for me to, you know, see, you know, him, you know, kicking Warnock out because I know that, you know, uh, Reverend Warnock is trying to do some great things and has a mission to be more inclusive. So, you know, just to say that we've got this, you know, famous person who's, you know, you know, done some things in the NFL, um, I, you know, it, he's going to have a lot of appeal, obviously. He's going to, you know, like I say, he's got the money to do all the advertising, but that doesn't mean um, you should be in public office. Now, if he comes out and he's got a more, a more robust plan than uh, uh, Senator Warnock, then, hey, he, maybe he should be there. Same thing with Caitlyn Jenner. If she comes out and she's, you know, doing much better than the other candidates and her vision is better than Gavin Newsom, then give it to her. I mean, it's I definitely say that it's it's fair for celebrities and wealthy individuals, you know, like a Donald Trump or Mike Bloomberg to run for office. I just you just see many of them run for office, but they don't have any plans. It's like they just. They just wake just up run. one day. And, yeah, just, exactly. They just wake up one day and, and put on Twitter, I'm in, like Caitlyn Jenner did, and, and don't really have any plans to how you're going to do it. I mean, it's even if you just took uh, two months to, you know, before you actually announced to say, okay, let's, let's figure out my team, let's figure out my platform, let's make some connections, and then announce, then at least it looked like you took some time to prepare for this rather than, you know, you were at dinner and somebody said, hey, dad, have you thought about running for governor? Like, come on, it's, that's, that's my uh, beef in it, just because I know with our government and politics, it takes money to be in public office. I mean, the, the, the average uh, U.S. House race last year, $2.5 million. Senate race was about $4 million. So obviously it takes a lot of money to run and be within our federal government. Um, but you've got to have the idea. So, you know, that's kind of my two cents, Deb. And I'm, I'm ha- you know, hats off to them. I'm happy to see it because one day I'm going to, you know, be like that and run for office as well. But I'm going to have some plans and I hope they do too. Huh. 
that's the that's the issue that I have with it. You know, like you say, it's easy to just wake up and say, "All right, I'm in, I'm running." But the harder the hard work is studying up on the issues that really affect people and putting together a platform and plans and how we're going to do things. Lip service is nice, um, but it is not something you just wake up and do. And this is really my issue. Like, why not go to the local level, start as a city councilman, you know, mayor or something? Like, what really qualifies Caitlyn Jenner to be governor of California? Like, I would be nervous as heck. Like, we went, y'all went through Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, some decades ago. You saw how that turned out. That was a mess. And so now you think, what in the world, Who? what qualifies Caitlyn Jenner to do better than that <laughs> without, you know, real plans and things like that? Um, I think hopefully we don't fall for this, you know, as voters and think, oh, you know, it's a big name. Let me check it. You know, people voting for Kanye West during the election. That's what makes me think that some of these (laughs) folks might run and might win, even though they have no earthly idea of what they're doing. You know, this is it's it's not a you can maybe learn on the job in certain places. But to me, governor, senator, president is not really a a, hey, let's learn on the job here. (laughs) That is too much at stake for that. No, unless um, you can. It'd be be interesting. We'll see. You said what now? No, I said unless you're actually going to come out with some concrete plans, and yeah, you can't you can't do that. And I mean, I don't I don't think either of them have really come out with concrete plans. It's just like I don't even know why you flirt with the idea of doing something like that, other than maybe you just want some extra followers or subscribers on your you know social media. But I really hope you know they do come out you know with some actual plans. Um, and it's just not a bunch of fluff, because like you said, you know, having a celebrity as governor might sound like a cool idea because he's a Terminator. But if he's not really getting <laughs> anything done, that's to make it make a difference, Devin. So uh, <laughs> had to throw that out there. <laughs> it's just funny when you hear the word Terminator and governor used in the same sentence. Like, it's just, it sounds ridiculous. Like what it was. We? Right. <laughs> so. Um, We'll keep you updated, you know, whether we see a, a Senator Herschel Walker or Governor Caitlyn Jenner or Governor Matthew McConaughey. We'll definitely keep you um, aware of what's going on with that. So before we go into our break, of course, we've got to give you one more uh, before the break story here. Um, and so according to The Washington Post, uh, state and federal officials announced that archaeologists um, Julie Slobitsky, I hope I'm saying it right, and her team, uh, turn it sound a little loud there. Um, so it looks like, according to the Washington Post, an archaeologist and her team believe they have found the site where Harriet Tubman lived with her parents and siblings um, in the early 1800s in Dorchester County, uh, Maryland, before she escaped enslavement and became a conductor uh, for the Underground Railroad. And so this is from the Washington Post. The structure... Uh, which they say was of unknown form, was owned by Tubman's father, um, a timber foreman and lumberjack who had been enslaved, and he had been given his freedom, the house where he lived, and a piece of land near the Blackwater River by his enslaver. And so officials said bricks, datable pieces of 19th century pottery, a button, a drawer pool, a pipe stem, old records, and the location all pointed to the spot likely being the site of the Ben Ross cabin. So interesting there. Uh, Harriet Tubman on the cabin uh, where Harriet, Harriet Tubman lived with her parents and siblings. Uh, it looks like it's been found in Dorchester, Maryland. So 
interesting story there. So we're going to take our uh, last break and we'll come back with quick hits. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get into All our right, quick so we're going to jump into our quick hits here. Um, and so, Adrian, it looks like we did get our first comment from uh, Mr. Timothy, who's watching us. And he says Schwarzenegger is part of a political family um, in California. So um, I guess just a little context there. You know, Schwarzenegger, he may be part of a political family, uh, but I think it's you know safe to say I don't know how that helped him or aided him in his Maybe that's why he ran and got elected. Uh, he certainly did not know what he was doing when he got in there, though. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Uh, <laughs> no, that that is definitely fair to say. It's almost like um, looking at this, uh, one of our first quick hits here, um, about some illegal drugs that were hidden in uh, a breakfast burrito. Um, you know, you could definitely say whoever did this wasn't, you know, thinking clearly. But it looks like TSA officials... Uh, at the William P. Hobby Airport in Houston, found a breakfast burrito with crystal meth, Devin. Um, real, real interesting. But uh, the, the, <laughs> sorry, the passenger, you know, I guess was attempting to smuggle uh, the, the unidentified lump inside the food. And he had to pass it through an x-ray screening because he had it on his carry-on luggage. And then they, you know, further inspected it because there was a dark object in the middle of the burrito and they had to take it through a second x-ray, and which revealed black tape and a large organic mass. Um, and then, of course, they called the Houston Police Department, which came in and determined the lump was crystal meth, which uh, you know, is illegal, of course, if you, if you didn't know that. Um, and then the police department, of course, took possession of the drug and arrested the, un- the unidentified traveler. So moral of the story, uh, don't do illegal drugs. And don't try to smuggle them through your breakfast burritos, especially if you're going to take them on your plane. That's bizarre. I've seen things. We've seen lots of stories about things being smuggled, but I think this might be the first breakfast burrito. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So our next quick hit here, this is bizarre, but I don't know what's happening down in Florida. There probably is something really in the water, but this is this is a story about a couple that planned a wedding on a mansion that they did not own. So apparently, Courtney Wilson and, Sh- and Shanita Jones, man and woman, invited family and friends to what they were calling their, quote, dream home and estate for a wedding celebration, which included the ceremony on Saturday and even a Sunday brunch. But there was one little bitty problem. Uh, they never spoke to anyone on the property about hosting this wedding. And it's probably because they were looking at all the cool things the mansion was equipped with, like a bowling alley. Uh, the mansion had a swimming pool with a waterfall, a hot tub, tennis courts, you name it. It's, it's got it. Um, and so Wilson, Courtney Wilson, said it was God's plan that the couple married there. And, but despite all of that, uh, the actual owner, who is uh, Mr. Nathan Finkel, uh, never gave them permission to hold the wedding there. 
So you can imagine his surprise when on Saturday morning, people started showing up and setting up for a wedding on his property uh, that he owned. And so he called police uh, and they came. And so what happened here is that Courtney Wilson, who's the groom in this, posed as a potential buyer some months ago. I don't know exactly when this happened, but sometime last year, he posed as a buyer and he toured the entire estate. And then he came back a few months later and asked the owner if he could host the wedding on the backyard. The owner said no, but apparently that wasn't enough to stop them. So the couple arrived on Saturday, setting up for the wedding. They sent out these elaborate uh, invitations detailing their love story. Apparently, they reconnected 30 years after high school, and he proposed over pizza on Christmas Eve, and they were supposed to have this glamorous Saturday afternoon ceremony that's going to be followed up by a red carpet cocktail hour (laughs) and a reception lasting way past midnight, and then there would be a Sunday brunch, you know, uh, from noon to four. All of that did not happen because they did not have permission to be on the property. Yeah, wow. I love this story, Devin. That that's <laughs> hilarious to see that that happened. Because when you when you think about the fact that this couple just saw a, a nice mansion with a bowling alley, a gazebo, a hundred foot bar, and was like, "Man, that's where I, we, that's where we should get married." Like, <laughs> hands down, that's that's God's plan. You know, it, you know, it reminds me of people who say, "I'm speaking it to existence." Yeah, you know, I'm manifesting it. Uh, but you know that doesn't happen always, especially uh, whenever you are on someone else's property. So that's uh, <laughs> interesting. Thank you, Devin, for that one. Uh, <laughs> this one here is is another good little uh, nugget for our listeners because honestly, um, I do laundry and sometimes I'll leave the house and I'll you know leave the washer or the dryer running or whatever. But uh, this story here might actually change your mind about you know what you do with that. So this story, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was out of the UK, but Laura uh, was actually sharing some images on her social media of some destruction that happened in her kitchen where her washing machine blew up. And this is actually in Glasgow, so this is in Scotland, but she had left her house and her her machine blew up. Uh, The manufacturers there, Whirlpool, they're saying that they're going to send out some investigators to figure out how the incident happened. But Laura, you know, posted the pictures just saying, you know, her kitchen's devastated. Um, she was actually saying that she had a fear. Uh, she had always heard that you're not supposed to leave the house and leave your washing machine running. But, you know, Devin, I think everybody does that. Everybody just leaves and thinks nothing's going to happen to it. But she went on to say, you know, I'm never going to you know, leave my washing machine on again when I'm out. So I was just, you know, wanting to let people know, I don't know what kind of machine you have, but if it's Whirlpool, you may want to make sure you turn that thing off when you leave the house. That's insane. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, That's a crazy story. So I don't know if this one will top that, but uh, this is a pretty funny story here. So if you're on some of the dating apps, in particular, if you're on Bumble, you better be very careful what you tell the person you match with. Because uh, that could land you in jail. And so uh, a man found out very quickly that he shouldn't have done that. So there was a man who got called out for bragging about his participation in the Capitol riots by his potential date on Bumble. The woman he matched with was not impressed and she contacted the authorities. And so the man, his name is Robert Chapman. He was arrested on Thursday and is now one of hundreds of people who are being charged for participating 
in the January 6th insurrection. So during their conversation, Mr. Chapman told his match, he said, quote, I did storm the Capitol. And he said, I made it all the way to Statuary Hall. And the woman whose name wasn't released, she replied and said, we are not a match. And then after that, she went and reported him to the authorities. And so, um, and then then the Carmel, so the New York resident was taken into uh, by the FBI and has been charged with disrupting official government operations and trespassing at the U.S. Capitol. So. <laughs> Man, Devin, that's a that's a hard. Which I've never been on those apps, but I think you know swiping left is decline. I'm like, man, that's a hard uh, swipe left right there when you decline and then turn them into the local uh, to the <laughs> FBI. Like, geez, like she she really did not like this guy. This guy he could have just done better to you know down you know delete his account. Uh, this is <laughs> I like this story. That's funny. <laughs> Um, I don't know if my my last story will top that, but I, this one's interesting uh, as well because it's the, the headline uh, listeners was uh, rather is Lego larceny. So basically, uh, basically this is an issue where uh, people are really actually stealing Lego box, and the French police said they're investigating. Get this, Devin, an international ring of toy thieves with a particular interest in Legos, international ring of toy thieves, you know, still in Legos. In this case, three suspects were caught taking boxes of Lego toys from a toy shop near Paris with the goal of selling the Legos in Poland. And actually the report finds this not just, is not just happening in Europe. Lego robberies have happened in the United States as well. Actually, there was a man in Oregon who was arrested by local police when he was suspected for stealing about 7,500 worth of Lego sets. And the kicker here is that there's a lot of money in Lego sets. When those sets come out, they're limited editions and they come out uh, rather than soon they become collector's editions and collector's items because there are limited amounts of them. For example, there was a Lego cafe corner that released in 2007 for about $150. And now it's selling for about three grand. And one of the things, Devin, that we've seen, you know, as a rise of this is because of the pandemic, people are needing to subsidize income. So I would say to our our listeners, you know, if you do need to subsidize income, if you do have Legos, just legally sell them. Don't, you know, go steal them or join this international ring of thugs. But there's they're they're real. So, you know, Devin, there it is. Legos, they're they're real popular. Maybe we need (laughs) to go figure out how to sell them legally. Yeah. That's who knew that there was an entire underground of Lego sets being passed around. (laughs) 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 Uh, So I think, I I don't know if this, this may be the last quick hit here. Um, But for those of you who have contacts, who may be using like things like nail glue and things like that and eye drops, you may want to pay attention to this story. Um, So there, there was a Michigan woman who nearly lost her vision last week after she mistook a bottle of nail glue for eye drops. And so according to the report, we found this on Fox News. Um, the woman, her name is Yasidra Williams, and she said she went to sleep with her contact lenses in, but she woke up around at 1 a.m. and wanted to take them out because her eyes were dry. Naturally, everybody does that. And so she said she went to reach inside her purse and she grabbed what she thought to be eye drops. But instead, she found a similarly sized white bottle of nail glue, which she typically uses to repair, you know, repair her broken fingernails. And so she opened the nail glue, put it into her eyes, and she was like, oh, my goodness. It dropped it to her eye, and she tried to wipe it away, and it sealed her eye shut. 
And so she just started throwing cold water on it. And she was trying to pull her eyes apart, but she couldn't. And so she was screaming at her at her husband to, to dial 911. And so uh, she, they rushed her to the hospital where the doctors were able to open her eye and remove her contact lenses. And the interesting thing here, Adrian, is that the doctors actually told her that her contact lenses likely saved her vision. And so she got them out. She's okay. But just a word to the wise, you know, make sure you know what you're grabbing when you go to grab some eye drops and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't wear glasses wow. or contacts, Devin, so I, I've never had to encounter this issue. But I would I would imagine that I would make sure to not keep those two, you know, my, my you know, a solution and my nail glue side by side. I would keep those, you know, as far away as possible. Yeah, but I get it, though. You know, it's one o'clock in the morning trying to take those contacts out. You probably can't really see what you're doing. And the bottles, I could imagine, you know, they're about the same size. It, it harkens back to the Gorilla Glue Girl story that we did earlier, you know, which, where she accidentally put in Gorilla Glue in her hair instead of some, I think it was some kind of moisturizer or something. So just <laughs> double check, triple check anything before you use it, particularly on your face, your hair, your eyes. Thank God she was able to keep her vision. Um, thankfully, the contacts were able to prevent, I guess, the solution from actually getting on her eye. Um, but that's a crazy, crazy story. <laughs> so, Great way to end quick hits. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to end it there. Um, so and just a little tidbit to add to the story. She did lose her eyelashes, but I think you'll take the eyelashes over your vision. So just putting that out Any day. There. <laughs> right. Any day. So. Um, so, yeah, that's going to do it for our show here. Uh, before we go, we always like to give you kind of a heads up, a look forward as far as what's going to be upcoming for the podcast. So next week on Tuesday, we'll be releasing a new episode that's going to be about abolishing the Electoral College. So we've had this discussion since 2016 or really since 2000 when Bush v. Gore happened. And so um, we're going to be talking with Jesse Wegman, who is a member of the New York Times editorial board, and he's an author of the book called Let the People Pick the President. And so we're going to be talking to him about why it's time for us to abolish the Electoral College. And so you can find his book on major outlets, but that episode is going to be coming out uh, Tuesday. Uh, let me see the date here, just in case you have your calendars out. Um, it is going to be Tuesday, April 27th. And it should be out probably midday or something. So just look out for that. Um, Jesse Wegman, New York Times editorial board, abolishing the Electoral College. And so, um, as always, we'll be back next weekend, uh, which will be May 1st. That'll be our first episode of the new month. Uh, we'll be back to bring you more news, more hot topics, more quick hits. Um, so make sure you download the Podbean app and listen to us. You can also share the link with your friends, family, coworkers, anybody who may be interested. Um, we appreciate that. We enjoy bringing you the news. So we'll be back. Next uh, Saturday, May 1st at 1 p.m. Central Time uh, to bring you the news. And so um, also before we go, we also like to let you know that you can help us out. Um, and so Adrian is going to let you know where you can donate to us. Yes. If you're listening to us, there's it's way, way easy because you can just click on the send gift button and that'll go straight to us. Um, if you need to think about it, all you need to do is go to our website, Black Agenda Pod, at your leisure and click on our donate tab. Uh, it's blackagendapod.com and you can go to our website there. But again, we always like to remind you 
that the reason you're giving is really about expanding our mission to be more of a movement. We love bringing you the news. We love talking to leaders and experts, but we really love to do some community development, some community building, um, some revitalization of our neighborhoods, and that takes money to do that. Um, So we would love to have your support. One of the other things that we're uh, looking to do every month is recognize a charity. And by giving to us, that can aid our charity of the month, which remember, April, the charity of the month is going to be the organization called Strive. Strive has a 36-year track record of serving people who face the greatest obstacles to employment. Strive helps a population seeking a better life acquire the skills and attitudes they need to find sustained employment. The majority of people who walk through their doors have no source of income, yet the majority of their graduates go on to gain meaningful employment and achieve economic self-sufficiency. So really, really great things going on through Strive. A couple of things we wanted to let you know, uh, listeners, that we're going to be having some new things to to kind of promote uh, and actually get our community engaged in our show production. One new thing that we're going to be doing is a person of the week. We'll send out some stuff on our social media, but you can actually submit someone who's doing some amazing things in your community that you'd like us to promote. and We'd love to be able to recognize them as our person of the week. You can submit that to any of our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can shoot us an email, just info at blackagendapie.com. The other thing we wanted to do is create a community calendar where you can start to submit events to us. And we want to be able to advertise those so that people within your community and around the country can start to participate and support what's going on in our local communities. We wanted to actually promote and recognize one of our newer volunteers, uh, Timothy Richardson, for joining us and helping us out. He actually suggested these two additions. We wanted to make sure to give him some spotlight and to just say that we're looking at not only uh, educating you, but also engaging with you now. So just wanted to make sure to give you some insight into some new things that we're going to be promoting. All right. And again, yes, thank you to Timothy for helping us out. We are always looking for volunteers, whether it's social media, um, production with the podcast. We can always use as much help as we can get. Um, And before we go here, uh, we always like to tell you, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. And then you can also find us on YouTube. Of course, you can just search the Black Agenda podcast. You can subscribe to our channel there. Um, Again, share this with your friends, family, coworkers, anyone else. We're just trying to get this out into our community and educate the folks on what's going on. So we appreciate you staying with us and sticking with us for our weekly roundup number 14. We'll be back next Saturday, May 1st at 1 p.m. We thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.